Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. My next guest on Protect and Serve led the Metropolitan Police's investigations team that gave a voice to victims. Victims who suffered immeasurable pain at the hands of Jimmy Savile, Rolf Harris, Gary Glitter and Max Clifford. Men who were in positions of power and influence and who deceived and groomed a generation so as to avoid detection of their offending. Former Commander Peter Spinner's career has been dedicated to investigating some of the most abhorrent and predatory offenders in our society. From his negotiation skills which aided in the safe release of an 11-year-old child, to his leadership during Operation Utree, Peter's career has seen him lead some of the country's finest investigators, who uncovered some of the most confronting investigations the UK has ever seen. It is a privilege to welcome him to Protect and Serve. Well, Peter, welcome to the podcast, Protect and Serve. It's lovely to have you here. How are you? Yeah, I'm excellent, thank you, and uh, very grateful for the invite. No, no, it's fantastic to have you on and uh, to explore what is quite a remarkable career within the Metropolitan Police over a number of years. And like every good detective at the start of every episode, I start at the beginning and I'm always fascinated by the decision to join and get involved in policing as a vocation and as a career and sort of the decision-making process behind that and, and what family expectations and feelings were when you made that decision? Well, it's an interesting question, especially as both my parents were doctors. So what normally happens is you get asked 
so why didn't you become a doctor? And it's <laughs> a fairly simple answer. At the age of about 14, when you were making, back in those days, your O-level choices, if you weren't putting physics, chemistry, biology, and maths at the top of the list, then you weren't going to become a doctor. And it's almost <laughs> sort of determined that you're going to go down a different route. But interestingly enough, I can trace my interest in policing back to the age of about seven. And I've still got the school project that I did. And I can still picture and remember and name the home beat officer that came to my primary school in Dulwich Village uh, that was probably my inspiration. And it it does show that importance of community policing and engagement with young people, at, at particularly at an early age. So what was it like walking through the gates of Hendon in the 80s, starting your training course? What were the feelings like? How was that experience? Well, it was incredibly emotional because I've been building up to this for years and years. And whilst I say my interest um, had started at the age of seven, I actually went to university with policing on my sort of future career choice and worked in some holidays up in Oxford Street, but actually ended up um, uh, getting involved in detaining uh, shoplifters and things like that, which I always found particularly fascinating. Um, and so the arrival in 85 at Hendon was one with sort of enormous anticipation and years and years of preparation had sort of gone into getting there. And you have to remember, I came in under the graduate entry scheme, which in those days was very small numbers of people who were getting singled out for what was then later called accelerated promotion. So there was a sort of a stigma that still persists to this day, in fact, around graduates. But um, for me, um, it was just something that I'm just incredibly proud to have got there and to be part of one of the greatest institutions in Britain. So you got the bug pretty early. You said there whilst you're working, you know, part time as a retail assistant, you're already starting to identify and, and catch shoplifters, which is um, quite incredible. But you already even had the bug to identify people committing wrong. It didn't help that I would got put on um, the silver plated cutlery franchise in <laughs> Dep- Oxford Street. So it was actually a bit of a magnet for some of those people who would... Uh, uh, look, seek out high value uh, items. But um, with the store detectives realised that I'd actually got a bit of a knack for this um, of spotting them. Was there a period during your training where the reality set in of the challenges that you were going to face when you were when you eventually graduated and, and hit operational policing duties? Well, it, it wasn't so much during the training, but um, as we started in 85, Uh, the Tottenham riots broke out and Keith Blakelock was Mm. murdered during those riots. They were scenes that shocked the country and yet were quickly overshadowed. PC Keith Blakelock was a father of three. He was protecting firefighters trying to put out the flames. Keith loved his job. He loved being a policeman and he was a good policeman. And he's left a lot of people with a lot of happy memories of him. PC Keith Blakelock died in rioting on the Broadwater Farm Estate on October the 6th, 1985. Riots which had been sparked by the death of Mrs Cynthia Jarrett during a police search of her home in Tottenham. Under a hail of bottles and petrol bombs, he was set upon by a mob chanting, Kill the pig. He was stabbed dozens of times. And the 
um, carriers, the public order support were based at Hendon. Um, and those were very difficult times and this sort of dawning reality of what you were facing even then in 1985. And the levels of violence uh, in those days weren't what they are today. You know, we didn't have body armor, you didn't have tasers. Um, you didn't have all of the officer safety equipment and training that people do today. But uh, even then, there, there comes a point where you actually think, you know, this could be really difficult um, and very challenging. So you graduated in 1985 and uh, went out onto the road operationally as a constable, as, you know, general duties. What were those first few weeks and months like, um, suddenly in a police car, on the beat, learning that new tradecraft that you've been taught over the number of weeks at Hendon? Well, interestingly enough, it, it wasn't the same as what you were being taught. Um, and <laughs> said police car, the reality was you walked. Um, and I went out to a suburban area of uh, South London. Um, there were quite a few probationers and we were expected to walk. Um, and it was the um, older officers who were in the vehicles. If you were lucky, you might get to be the operator on the van. But a lot of the time was spent also in the station. You were either a station officer at the front desk or in the communications room, dealing with the members of the public and taking decisions around how phone calls should be answered. And you've got this real grounding in police work and dealing with the public um, and you didn't actually get to go out on the vehicles and responding to emergency calls until much later on you did get picked up and taken out to deal with the dead bodies um, to deal with suicides to deal with shoplifters um, but it was all incremental and it was actually a very sort of staged and staggered approach that worked well you, you talked about having to go and help at suicides and at sudden death which can often be quite confronting scenes for a lot of new constables who really don't know how to manage that kind of trauma that you know that, that you know that they're witnessing until they're faced with it how did you overcome those challenges and those experiences did you you were able to talk to colleagues how did you kind of allow that stuff not to burden you well going back to sort of 1986 87 we didn't use words like trauma we didn't have that level of understanding around how these issues might affect you. Um, from a personal perspective, I've been brought up in a family of doctors. Um, everything was fairly sort of scientific, forensic, um, routine conversations at the mealtime about things that happened in hospitals or uh, in the GP practice where my father worked. Um, so it didn't quite have the same effect on me as it might have done on others or maybe years on I'm just so hardened by what I've seen and experienced um, mm. that you don't think about it in the same way I mean I you know 36 37 years on I can actually remember most of the sudden deaths that I've dealt with the suicides fatal fires things like that but not in a way that affects me um or harms what i do and i've been able to process sort of those issues probably better than maybe others have for whatever reason but again it goes back to the point that we were expected to deal with it it was what you were paid to do you know if you didn't like that sort of thing 
then don't join policing. It sounds like you had a really good support base in terms of your parents and their backgrounds. It sounds like they were very good sounding boards for some of those probably more complex matters and, you know, those more kind of confronting issues. They sound like they were there and you were able to talk about those issues because of their medical backgrounds for them and they would understand them. Yeah, I mean, we were. it was a similar sort of public service, you know, and, and whilst I um, uh, wasn't practising medicine, it was, I was still, like them, a public servant helping people in need, um, people who had problems or issues. Uh, what we were dealing with were more, um, as police officers anyway, more sort of social side of issues as opposed to medical issues. But broadly, the principles were the same. At what point then, shortly after you graduated, you spent your operational time, your training period with your mentor on the road, learning the tradecraft of, of the Office of Constable? At what point did you realise that maybe the role of detective or, or of an investigator was for you? Because some people transition off to traffic, some people go to air support. Where did you see yourself fitting in the organisation being so large? I had always been attracted to the CID. Uh, got to remember going back to the 70s and 80s, I was brought up on the same uh, diet of TV programmes such as the Sweeney. That sort of image of the Scotland Yard detective had always appealed to me but I actually really enjoyed interviewing people I really enjoyed questioning trying to find get the truth out of them um, and it, it was after probably in my probation during that first two years that I realized this is where I, I wanted to be but I still enjoyed the sexy side of policing that you know the blue lights going on the sirens the chasing down of the criminals the running down back streets you know that that was still appealing but actually, it was the more cerebral challenge of actually taking on the more difficult individuals in society and trying to bring them to justice that really appealed. So between 85 and 97, you went from your police constable to uh, those investigative roles throughout your career. What was your first real kind of detective position? Where were you stationed and what sort of work were you tasked to carry out? Well, as a PC, um, one of the issues you have to remember is that I was on this graduate entry scheme and we were time limited in what we could do. So I didn't have a traditional route of entry into the CID. Um, again, in the 80s, it took a lot longer to get in, uh, to get selected. And because I had to be promoted by a set date, I was on a home office regulated scheme as a PC, I did what was then called beat crimes, which is the lower level of crime investigations and the divisional crime squad. But then I'd hit, I'd extended as long as I could. So I did four years as a constable um, and then got promoted to sergeant. And it was in that time as a sergeant that I was um, put in charge of a domestic violence unit, which is um, a time where we'd only just really recognised the significance of domestic violence. And that then enabled me to pass my selection for detective inspector uh, with only seven years of service at the age of 28. And I vividly remember my first posting to South Norwood, where as a detective inspector, I had seven detective sergeants. Five of them had more service than I had alive. And that was wow. a challenge. Um and there was no way that I was going to turn up as a 28, nearly 29-year-old DI and tell them what to do. Um, How do you navigate that? What's what's the greatest challenge to you? Because ultimately, you need to make decisions. You need to sometimes tell people how you think things should 
should be navigated was a case of you recognize the fact that you're a DI, but these people that are in front of you have got years and years more experience. Is it a case of allowing them to guide you through it? Definitely. And all the time, it's about demonstrating your credibility. And in fact, someone once said, you're always chasing credibility. When I look back, I can see in myself, you know, I took on things that I didn't need to do, but it earned their respect and admiration. I mean, some of them are never going to accept you. Some are never going to accept that you can do that. Um, And what they had to recognise is actually you don't need to investigate 10 murders to become a good homicide detective. You actually learn everything from the first three that you investigate. But it does come back to leadership. And that's what you were there to do. As a detective inspector, you were there to lead. That's what the staff were looking for. They weren't actually looking for super detectives. They wanted someone that was going to empower and enable them to do their jobs properly. Was there a defining moment at your first posting where you think you probably gained that respect? Was there a homicide or a matter which you led on, which you think people looked up, you know, this guy's got it. You know, this is the guy that we're going to follow. He's, he's he, he knows what he's talking about. There, there were probably a number of those because it never happens quite with one moment and different people will see different things in you. But I remember one particular case, which I worked with one of the DCs in the office on where we'd picked up on, um, I can't remember what exactly started it, but ultimately we'd identified, it it was an extortion actually around uh, Kebab House and it involved Turkish Kurds and ultimately the PKK, which was one of the um, Kurdish um, movements, a political movement that actually used terror tactics. And as a result of our work, special branch came down from Scotland Yard and took the case office and they could not believe the job that we had developed at the local level just from doing some fairly routine basic detective work um, and actually solved a number of other crimes around London based on uh, our efforts in um, what, what was not seemed to be a particularly high profile posting. You've spent a fair bit of time in the negotiation scene and the kidnap and extortion area of investigation work, a work which I would expect to be quite a high-pressure environment. There's a lot at stake in terms of, um, obviously, that our primary role of preservation of life and trying to um, you know, bring people out of a tricky situation into a kind of a level of normality. What was it like in that area? Is there any particular stories or, or investigations that you reflect on going back in those environments of kidnapping extortion which stand out for you? Well, there's two issues there. You, you mentioned negotiation first, and that is an element of the kidnapping extortion response. But let's just deal with um, the world of hostage and crisis negotiation. And that is um, staffed by an incredibly dedicated cohort of very caring and compassionate individuals in policing who are essentially doing voluntary work in their own time to help other people. Um, The reality about hostage crisis negotiation is it was, you couldn't enter it unless you were of inspector rank or above. You weren't paid overtime um, by then, that had been removed from those ranks. Most of the calls seemed to be at 2 a.m. in the morning, almost always to a person in crisis, whether they barricaded themselves into a building, climbed onto a roof, um, or had got themselves trapped in some sort of um, situation that they just couldn't find a way out of. 
And you don't get paid any sort of call-out fee. You don't get anything extra for it, but you do it because you believe in it and you do it because you want to help people. So the negotiators, they're making themselves available in their time. They're putting additional pressure on themselves. And don't get me wrong, it's exciting. It's fun. You get a call at two in the morning. Suddenly, you're needed. People want you. You're important. And there is a buzz that goes with it. You know, you're jumping out of bed, putting the blue light on the roof of the car or getting a traffic car to pick you up, to take you into the middle of someone else's crisis or critical incident. And you're there to solve it. Um, and it's personally very rewarding when you do. Tragically, and thankfully very rarely, um, they don't come to a good end. That was a problem more in the kidnap and extortion world, where in particular with the international kidnaps, where often the ending isn't what you would want it to be. Um, but, you know, it's a the negotiation element is a vital part of the kidnap and extortion response. How do those kidnap matters come to light? How do you how do they present to you in terms of are these are these international matters where tourists have gone into countries where there's a heightened security risk and they've been abducted and you know there's there's a response because they're a British citizen overseas? Is that part of that response? How does how does that all kick into play? How do you get involved in that? Well, I began my training exposed to kidnap and extortion and extortion when I was on the um, National Crime Squad, which is one of the uh, precursor organisations to what's now the National uh, Crime Agency. And we provided the um, kidnap and extortion response to the primarily the county forces around England and Wales. So my experience was based around our proactive response, supporting county forces who are investigating kidnap and extortion. The majority of the offences were what we would call bad on bad, where criminals were extorting um, each other or enforcing debts. But there were examples of um, domestic or stranger kidnaps, um, in particular with a sexual motivation, um, and they're particularly um, challenging. And also the international element, which is almost always coordinated by Scotland Yard, which I didn't get exposed to until I was in the most senior ranks and actually overseeing those from what we'd call a gold strategic. Is there any examples where you've had real good successes which you reflect on saying we did without naming names because they're quite sensitive matters but are there any that you reflect on going back going listen with you know any scenarios where you had a really good outcome or incredibly proud of what you achieved oh absolutely and the 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 one that comes to mind immediately when i was on the national crime squad was supporting cambridge police with the abduction of an 11 year old boy by a criminal gang who were extorting his parents um and it was incredibly rewarding when he was um, set free from his captors. Uh, they were coming out of the hotel where they'd been holding him. We'd located them at that hotel through specialist covert techniques, which we employed in back in the day. These were groundbreaking techniques as well, using um, mobile data telephony. And they were going to kill that boy. And we saved his life. Um, we collectively, it's teamwork, but the decisions that 
I took and the experience that I brought to the table, I know contributed to saving that boy's life. Taking someone's child would invoke them to do anything to get them back. And ultimately, I suppose that's the, that's the leverage that the, the, the individuals are trying to, to set. They, they, they want to gain leverage so somebody makes a decision to, to give them what they want. Why were that particular family targeted? Was, were the parents involved in nefarious activities or were these criminals just opportunistic in finding a vulnerable family? The, the parents owned a restaurant. They were cash rich. There was another criminal group that owed somebody else a debt who, and this was a, a again, an international organization. Uh, they needed to come up with some money very quickly. And they decided that these individuals had access to the money. So these were the ones they would target. Um, and it was relatively simple, straightforward motive, purely financial, paying off a debt to some other criminals who do we know who can access that money? Um, we'll take that boy. The more challenging area is, as you say, the international um, situation where often you're dealing with terrorists. Britain has a policy of not paying ransom because you're, if you do, uh, you're encouraging more and more kidnaps as a fundraising method. And unfortunately, if you're a British hostage taken as part of an international group, as I did uh, work on on a number of occasions, it may not end well. Um, and the Brits, because they know of our strong government policy, the terrorists will often make an example of the British captive first. This is our 27th day in captivity. So far, we have been provided with adequate food and water. Our captives are very impatient now, so we ask the government and the people of Britain and our family to do whatever they can to buy back our lives. Um, but we've also lost people in hostage rescue. Um, so again, you know, incredibly difficult for special forces to go in and retrieve hostages. Um, very challenging situations for them. And sometimes they go wrong as well. So it's a much less happy ending. But uh, again, a very structured response that is tried and tested and very effective in dealing with these issues. The UK police have arrested a gunman who held two staff members hostage at a bowling alley in a leisure complex in central London. No casualties have been reported and the hostages were released unharmed. We talk about in large investigations and particularly those types, you know, there's often um, conflicting priorities. What's important now? In that sort of process, what is the most, as the negotiator, if you're leading that process, what is the most important thing at you right at that moment? Is it just maintain that line of communication? Everything is about victim focus. And one of the first things that we do in these scenarios is we actually write the victim's name up in the middle of your whiteboards or whatever system you're using to manage it so you know who this is about and you are doing everything that is in that victim's interests to make sure that they come out safe and well and you try to personalize them and in any communications with the uh, criminals i mean often in the kidnap response you're not communicating directly with them but maybe through uh, intermediaries or through the family themselves but it is all about ensuring the focus stays on ensuring the safety of that individual. Is there ever moments when the negotiations break down? Uh, yes, and that things can become very tense. 
but you have to ensure that everybody's needs are being met and that part of any negotiating strategy that you're making sure that there is something in it by way of an exchange of um, goodwill between the different parties involved and trying to build a bond and relationship with those who have actually carried out the crime so that they will work with you to come up with a successful resolution. Do you think that the, the individuals, that the, those nefarious individuals carrying out these activities, do you think they realise that you are involved in that particular matter? Because you're not dealing directly with them, you're you're talking through the parents. But do you think they have an idea that police are involved? Well, they're always going to suspect it. Um, and everything that the law enforcement side are doing has to be covert, has to be protected. There's mm. some very discreet methodologies that are employed. The The response is designed as such, and it, it's well-structured, it's well-trained, and people are working in their very discreet areas of business as a team led by a senior investigating officer, usually sort of detective chief inspector or detective superintendent, and then supported by chief officers. And that was more my role later in the service of actually supporting kidnaps, being a visible leader, um, if you knew that there was a kidnap that was running live, actually visiting the control room, um, finding out what additional um, resources were required, authorising covert activity if it needed um, a chief officer's uh, level of authority, and making sure that all of the units were working together and that nobody was um, reprioritising uh, for something else whilst that was... what. You know, what we call a crime in action was actually ongoing for the team navigating that particular issue i suppose one of the greatest skills sets to come out or one skill set that you'd want to really have is the ability to deal with pressure because you know that any one decision you make could result in i suppose a wrong decision being made at the other end of that whole process how do you handle that pressure by being professional um by being hopefully well-trained, well-supported. You work it through with your colleagues, with your senior officers. Um, we do, we, I mean, I'm seven years out, but still using that word. Um, <laughs> it, the teams will use peer support. They'll get colleagues in to review what they're doing, to bounce ideas off things. They will have structured debriefs to see what lessons they can learn. Um, but it, actually in the heat of the moment, um, I, I've almost always found that people are incredibly professional in the way that they're operating. I mean, policing is always at its best in a crisis. Now, mm. it, it, policing it gets pilloried in the media for things it gets wrong, but generally it's the routine mundane stuff that goes wrong. It's not the big things. Um, there are obviously some high profile examples over the years of major events that have gone wrong. But this sort of um, type of major investigation, kidnap and extortion response rarely hits the news headlines. The public rarely gets to see the insides of what's going on for good reason. And mm. the officers um, it do get a great deal of satisfaction from the work they um, deliver on. And I remember we actually used to have every year what was called the can-do Christmas party. And this was the epitome of the Scotland Yard detective ethos, that it was a can-do philosophy. Yes, boss, we can do this. 
you know, and and they got on and they delivered, and they still do today. Um, you know, you only need to look at what the gun crime figures have been like for the last sort of eighteen months, and sadly there have been a couple of recent fatalities. But I think the Met has gone now for eighteen months without a fatal shooting because they've been working so hard at re- targeting the men of violence, taking weapons off the street and making London a safer place. You're listening to part one of my chat with former commander Peter Spindler. In part two, Peter talks us through one of the most delicate and high-profile cases of his career, a case that would see him and his team investigate a man who groomed a nation. Had his own TV programmes where he was the brand himself and everything was about him and the good work that he was doing. Thank you, dear friends. Now then, now then, straight to business. Lisa wrote to me and she said, Dear Jim, my brother Geoffrey, who is five, likes animal biscuits, especially the elephant ones. Dear Jim, ever since I learned to drive, I've wanted to go on a skid pan. This will prove to my husband that I really am a safe, careful driver. Clunk the car door and click the seatbelt. Clunk, click, every Next time on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, produced, edited, and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.